You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. My guest is an Academy Award nominee who featured on the show in 2021. And when Jennifer Zhang asked me what episode would I choose if I had to select a standout interview for 2021, who would that be? Well, it's not an easy choice to make. We've had so many great guests and they've all been really great contributors to the film podcast across the last year. But If I had to choose, my choice is a multi-award winning film director who grew up in Lebanon, winning awards including AFI, Cannes, Toronto and Munich. And earlier in his career, he worked with Quentin Tarantino as a focus puller on Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. And last year featured a French miniseries on Netflix called Inhuman Resources. Ziad Zueri is my filmmaker interview pick for 2021. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Your filmography is such an interesting and diverse one. Some of your films include West Beirut, The Attack and The Insult. Your backstory will be of huge interest to our listeners. You grew up in Beirut during the Civil War with a lot of violence and injustices taking place. Tell me how you dared to dream of becoming a filmmaker and just how difficult and challenging that was in the Middle East for you as a young man. You know, Greg, it's always uh, often a question that's very hard for me to answer. Is how did it all start? How do you want to make movies? It's a complex. You could trace it back all the way to your childhood or something that developed during teenage. I, I can't recall. I know, though, that I used to go with my father very early on when we moved back from Africa, where my parents were teaching for the United Nations. And when we went back to Beirut, uh, my dad was a huge fan of movies at the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And he used to take me to see, and the first film I've seen was, I think, The Jungle Book in a movie theater. And then when the war started in Lebanon in 1975, the best thing for us was the safest place to be was to go to movie theater. That's before the invention of the multiplex. There used to be single theaters and then it was underground like all movies. And when the bombs were falling and it was very, you know, very bloody war, my parents were always scared that we as a teenager would go out on the street, but they allowed us to go see a movie a lot because it was safe. And for us, movie-making experience in Beirut in the 70s was, was not just a form of entertainment. It was actually a form of survival also. And since we had no leisure and no vacation and the country was ruined, the only thing that kept going throughout this whole period uh, was movies. Uh, the film distribution company worked a lot. We kept on uh, receiving films from all over the world, from the States and from European movies. We even have porn movies at that time. Can you believe it? In the Middle East, there was a theater called The Pavilion, which used to show porn movies or semi-erotic movies. So we got exposed to all kinds of things. And it, it, it's just, you know, when you go into that movie theaters and the light dims down, the curtain opens, and at that time, back in the 70s, mind you, there's something so fantastic. You always have to have 10-minute newsreel, which you get the news. It used to be shot at 60 millimeter at that time. So you're watching the news every day or once a week in the movie theater, and then you have uh, a cartoon, whether it's Heckle and Jekyll or Donald Duck, whatever, and then the movie starts. 
it was a way of living, really. It was not just about entertainment. It was the only leisure I've had. It's the only leisure I could afford. You know, my parents did not have money so we can take trips to Europe or whatever. We had nothing. So for three bucks at that time, we used to go and, and a buck extra, you could buy your popcorn. And if you pay a little bit more, you can buy what used to be called fauteuil, means special seats, which are a little bit more comfortable than the orchestras. And then it was it, maybe movie making started like that. Maybe the idea of wanting to tell a story started early on. I don't know. It's difficult to answer. And then when I finished high school, I talked to my mom and my dad. I said, Look, I want to pursue film studies. Uh, you know, that's the early 80s. It was not as common as it is now. Now it's every university has to open a film department because it's such a moneymaker. But at that time, it was not that, you know, there were few schools that taught film in the United States. And then my parents had, you know, thought, should we send him to Europe? It's cheaper. It's closer to Lebanon. And I said, no, I'd rather go to study films in, in the United States because most of the film I've seen were American films. This is how it was. Just, you know, mm. American exported a lot more than anybody else. And this is when I got exposed to a lot of Sidney Lumet's film and Three Days of the Condors and versus Kramer versus Kramer's and Jaws. And the early 70s were very formative years for me. And it was an extension going to the United States. So finally, my parents cranked up some money and says, okay, we're going to send our kids to Los Angeles to study film. And that's where I went. And I did my studies. And after I graduated, I started looking for work. And I started at the beginning as an assistant. Uh, no, I was actually a grip and an electrician. And then slowly I was moving toward the camera because I know I wanted to work in camera. And after Jackie Brown, I decided that I don't want to assist anymore. I don't want to become a director of photography either. I just want to write and direct. And that's how I did the shift. Which film school in Los Angeles did you go to? I went to San Diego State University and I took extension classes at UCLA. As mentioned, you have worked with Quentin Tarantino on three films as his focus puller. He obviously was a fan of your work after Reservoir Dogs. Were you pinching yourself at that time when you landed, uh, although I guess Reservoir Dogs and Quentin wasn't the, the name that he is today, but still? It's a very tiny budget. I think it was $1.2 million at that time. And to tell you the truth, it was a producer, Jamie Beardsley, who hired me on my very first job when I came out of college. Uh, and then she was a very kind woman and I was knocking on doors in Los Angeles trying to find work. Nothing. I, I was even willing to drive cars just to work in the film. And then she says, look, I'm going to work on this film as an electrician. Are you willing to do it? I says, I'll do anything. And then mm. a few years later, she called me. She says, yeah, I want you to do me a favor. I'm working on a film right now, which we absolutely love the script. It's a first time filmmaker and it doesn't pay much, but can you do me this favor and work? I said, Jamie, of course, no problem. You, you know, she helped me with my career she start, started my career so said i'll do it and then i got the script and i'm reading it and i didn't understand what the hell is going on i said i don't understand anything about that film and that film turned out to be reservoir dogs and <laughs> it was just so so funnily written but i remember during the shooting i would tell myself i would tell that film could either end up as a huge hit or just straight a vhs because you don't know you know he was it was a new language at that time and then slowly you start finding that he has his thumbprint on his film because he played with dialogue and structure and make it very entertaining. That's how we ended up. And then after that, Quentin, after Reservoir Dog, took the same crew to Pop Fiction and then took the same crew to Four Rooms and then took the same crew, almost the same crew to Jackie Brown, but I stayed with him. And then when he went on to Kill Bill, he wanted to take me with it. But he changed the director of photography. He switched from 
Andre Secula, he did his first film, then Guillermo Navarro did his Jackie Brown, and then he worked with a great, great cameraman, Bob Richardson. And he wanted to take this, the same crew, and I was offered to go work on Kill Bill, but at that time, I decided not to assist anymore. So that was the end of this career. I imagine that it was like a film school on steroids by the time that you got to the end of Jackie Brown. Tell me some of the more valuable aspects of knowledge that you picked up and carried forward into your own projects. It's a great question, Greg, because you always think that I'm influenced by Quentin's movie. I'm not, you know, we don't write the same thing and then everyone has his own world. But he left an incredible trace in me and in a lot of other filmmakers, especially that I work so close to him. There's something about Quentin that is that today in my career, I keep referring to it as his dedication to the craft. He is so goddamn dedicated to filmmaking. There is no compromise. It's it's a vocation. It's in his genes, and it's infectious. And you know, you know, I've seen him how he get involved with his egocentrism. In a way, there's some narcissism in the way he does it. But that's the magic about it: total dedication, total enthusiasm, always creating surprises, always entertaining the crew and the cast because. He is just such a great director, really is. I've worked so close to him. I mean, I was close to the camera all the time, right? And he was never behind a monitor. Quentin never used the monitor to see. He he did not want to be there. He just wanted to be behind the camera operator. So we were always glued. I I would hear him breathing when there are scenes that were tense, really. And Mm -hmm. you would hear his his aura, his radiating all the energy. And at that time, I didn't realize it. It took me a little bit of a while to understand how much he left an impact on me because he's a compulsive guy. Quentin is, is, is just like, there's no limit. Like, to hell with all of it. I just got to go all the way. The w- I'm not talking about how he constructs his characters. That's a different mm. topic. I'm telling how he is on a set because mm. I work with him on a set. I work with him on many other movies. I mean, he did a film called Dusk Till Dawn, like I said, with with George Clooney, which is a very cult movie, actually. It's the film that really launched George Clooney's career. Being with Quentin on set is total dedication. And I think when I moved on and to do my own movie, it kind of affected me. I said, you either got to give it all away and immerse yourself. Don't be afraid to be embarrassed. To hell with that. Or just you got to be normal. And he raised the standard, actually. I saw him last year when he came to Paris to screen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And just the guy has an incredible memory. He remembers so many things. I mean, really, this is his strongest aspect. He, is a, he has a memory of an Indian elephant. And he's just an enthusiast. There was a time where I kind of like disliked him a bit during four rooms when we were doing it. Not because he was mean. It's just, it happens. You don't know why. And then on Jackie Brown, it was such a fantastic experience with him. Loved him. I think about him all the time. He's the guy who's always hovering all over you because he leaves such an impact and such a brilliant filmmaker. He really is. I mean, when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was very affected by it because it reminded me of my life in Los Angeles too. You know, I lived 18 years of my life in Los Angeles. It left an incredible impact on me. And when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was his autobiographical somehow, and mine too. And I realized how much Americana had left an impact on my life while I was in Beirut. You know, Americans have exported this incredible culture. You know, it's amazing how powerful American culture is ingrained in us. And I'm telling you, I grew up in a country that was hostile to America. You know, because it's the American imperialism and it's bullshit America and it's America the pro, pro, pro. 
yeah, we've been influenced by American cinema. We have not been influenced by Russian cinema or by Chinese cinema. You know, it's amazing. It's, and it's something that I'm juggling with these days. My next two films are in the States. Tell me about your next two films. Can you speak to that? I can say it. Uh, my next film is about very, very uh, contested president in America. It's Jimmy Carter. I've wrote a script about him and I'm renewing it again because it is just a, such an incredible feature. Incredible president. One of the best presidents we've ever had. He was very blamed very criticized and very disliked. But the more you study him, the more you find what a grandiose president he was, in spite of all his flaw. You know, I've, I've been studying American history a lot about this, about this guy. So he did something in 1978, which I can't reveal yet, which was outstanding, that broke everything. That it's become one of the most important things he's ever done in his career. And that's what I'm doing. And where, whereabouts is the project at, at this stage in terms of timeline? I... I I finish it in about a month. I finish the writing, and then I have a French company that's developing the whole thing. I want to come back to France because it seems that you, you find money in France, or you have been, uh, to get some of your projects uh, made. Is that been the case? It's funny that France has been my home, emotionally and even financially. That's, it's funny because I'm not a big fan of French movies. Old French movies are great, but in the last 30, 40 years, I haven't really liked French movies, except very, very few. Yet, this is where I've been financing all my movies. Even a part of the insult, which was a Lebanese movie, was financed by France. The main financing was a Lebanese guy, but France has always been here. Because, you know, there's something interesting about this country. Culturally, they're very open, more than any other country in the world. France... Even in the foreign ministry, you go and there is a filing cabinet, literally you open that drawer and there is funding for films for all over the world, whether it's Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, Asia. They have this incredible openness that you don't find any other place. You don't have it in Germany. You don't have it in England. You don't have it in Scandinavia or Russian. You definitely don't have it in America. France is the country that co-finance and produce foreign movies more than any other place in the world. And it, it, we're naturally coming here to do it. And the next film that I'm doing about America with 100% American story is fully financed in France. All the coups in France that I know of are working. There's not a single person that I know that is not working. There's Everybody's working on a film right now. So I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, what about those films stashed that are on a... They are on a shelf waiting for the movie theaters to be open again. I, we don't know. But it's, it's good to be in France, to tell you the truth. Even though France in itself kind of lack stories in terms of... The French movies is, is not that interesting at this time. You know, it's the little stories. We could do bigger stories, like you know, something related to something a little bit bigger than just the neighbor who's screwing his neighbor. I've been a little bit critical about it. From Beirut to Los Angeles, I just want to talk about a juxtaposition. At the Oscars, your movie, The Insult, was nominated for Best Foreign Film, but two months prior to getting the nomination, you were arrested and jailed back in your, your homeland. We often hear about the highs and the lows of filmmaking, but this is at the extreme end. Tell me a little bit about what happened there for our filmmaking audience will find this of interest. Right. In 2012, I did a film called The Attack, and it's a film that I shot in Israel because the story takes place in Israel. Now, you, your audience should know that Lebanon and Israel have been at war, technically at war, since 1948. 
That means there are laws in both countries until now that forbids their citizenship to fly and work or meet or confer or collaborate with the other person with the other side. Meaning, if today, as any Lebanese citizen, I do an art project or political meeting or teach a class or speak on the radio with an Israeli, the law says it's five years of forced five years jail and forced labor. It's very, very serious. Nobody had ever crossed that border. When I start thinking about the film, I spoke to my mom, who's a lawyer. She said, you know, you should not be going to Israel because it's illegal. You will get arrested. So I tried to find legal ways to overpass that law and go do it because I'm not going to go shoot it in Egypt if it takes place there. I need to work with Israeli actors if it has to be any authenticity. Finally, I took the risk. And since I had a U.S. passport, I took the plane and I went to Israel and I shot it there. And when I came back, I didn't hide it. I didn't think ethically you should hide it. I could. I could change names and say I haven't been to Israel, but I said that was bullshit. You don't do it when you you know when you do something. You got to be proud of it and say what it is. It got me into a lot of problems. It got me into legal problems, but bizarrely, the authorities didn't arrest me when they knew that I was in Israel because it's five year jail. Like I said, I think they didn't want to mess with it because they had other things to worry about, and they did not want to arrest the filmmakers because he went and shot in Israel. But then they boycotted the movie. So the attack was not released in any country in the Middle East. 22 Arab countries boycotted the movie. Okay, fine. Now, what I did in 2018, I went back to Beirut to do the insult. The subject of the insult was a bit critical because I was pointing the fingers and saying in the film that Palestinians have committed massacres, which is 1976 Damour massacres, which nobody talks about it. The reason nobody talks about it is because it's a taboo. People are used to hear that the Jews had committed massacres, but nobody had heard or wanted to hear that the Palestinians had committed massacres, which was the case. And this film was based on that story about a guy who grew up in that village and who escaped when the massacre occurred. That irked the authority. Like not only you went to Israel in 2012, but now you're coming and you're pointing the fingers at the Palestinians. So it created such an incredible dilemma that the left-wing parties, bizarrely, mainly the boycott and divestment sanction, the BDS, they mounted an incredible campaign telling the Lebanese authority, you got to arrest that guy. And when I came back from the Venice Film Festival, where we won Best Actors for the Insult, I was arrested at the airport and I was taken to a military tribunal. Had the Prime Minister, Rafi, uh, uh, Saad Hariri, at that time, received the call from my producer. He was in a meeting with Vladimir Putin at 11 p.m. And my producer told the prime minister of Lebanon, he says, Ziad Wari has been arrested. Hariri phoned back immediately to the judge, the military tribunal judge, and he said, you release that guy right away. I was released, but I was interrogated, and then I was acquitted. All right, they say, okay, Ziad went to Israel, but time had passed. And we cannot judge something that went for a long. It has a technical word in English. I forgot what it is. When time goes and you don't ask for a judgment, it goes away. And since then, I have not gone back to Lebanon because I don't want to be arrested again. Except last September when President Macron went to Beirut after that huge explosion. He called and he asked me to accompany him. I said, look, I don't want to go back. You know, I don't want to deal with stupid authorities in Lebanon ran by terrorists. And he says, you stay in my convoy. Nobody will attack you. So I went and I accompanied him for three days. 
and we toured the area where the devastated. You remember that explosion? I don't mm. know if you've heard mm. about it. Yeah, 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 no. Mm. It destroyed actually a third of the city. It was, uh, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I've gone through many wars, but that was, that, that was the last nail in the coffin, actually, that mm. demoralized the people because it was so big. Mm. And uh, I went and saw it last September, and I haven't been back then. So the insult went, which is the irony of things. The insult represented officially the Lebanese government even though the government censored the movie. Isn't it funny? But That's crazy. this is how politics in Lebanon is. You know, I had a government in 2018 that was sympathetic to me. Today, in 2021, I will not be able to release or film or present a film to the Oscars if I'm shooting it today because things have changed because, you know, the government has changed and now it's owned by the Hezbollah, so it's not the same thing. Ziad, there is this rawness and confronting style to your films rooted in realism and authenticity. And I suspect that your background that you're talking about might be at play. When you were younger, you saw war in Beirut. How much of that, and I suspect a lot, I suspect I already know the answer to this, but how much of that has carried forward into your filmmaking style as we know it today? A good question, Greg. I think it's central. I think the moments that I grew up in Beirut it become embedded in your genes, become part of the way you see the world. But what's what I'm also figuring out today in my time here in Paris is how much actually living in America for such a long time have actually influenced also my views. And I think it is it, it, it's a balance, not a balance. It's how do you say syncretism is when you have two things that blend together. And you are the byproduct of these two things together. Growing up in the Middle East has been, of course, you, you don't choose where you grow up at the beginning, has been left an incredible part in the way I view things. But I think my life in America had injected such a different things in it. And I'm, today I am better both. I juggle with both culture. I look at both culture. I analyze both culture. And I work in both. And it's funny because all the, all the films that I write, Every single one of them, I write them in English, and then I translate them into Arabic or Hebrew because I naturally, I naturally want to do it that way. What do you think the state of the film industry around the world is in right now? Uh, and that can be the streamers, it can be the, the the cinemas. What is going to happen to to cinemas? Where do you think things are going to either improve or get worse? We're all, all, all in a transitional period. I've asked that questions to two of my French producer. I have two different producers. One of them is very pessimistic, and the other one is very optimistic. The guy who is financing that next movie about Jimmy Carter is very optimistic, and uh, a guy who financed the attack, the insult, and West Beirut is very down. He believes that uh, we're never going to recover. So I think I am in a position where many filmmakers around the world are wondering what's going to happen. Are the good movies that are going to go to theatrical release are just going to be big budget? What about the independent film? I fall in a small independent film. You know, the, the film that I do range from 2 to 15. They're still considered small films. Are we going to have a niche in a movie theater or are we done? I don't know. I took 2020 and 2021 to write two feature films. Next month, I'll be done with the second one. I am planning to shoot them as features and I have a financiers for both of them. Now, are they, once we do them, are they going to be released in a movie theater? I don't know. Look at the Academy 
list this year. You have, you know, Sound of Metals, which I absolutely loved. There are other films, Nomad's Land and uh, Minari and all these things. Those films will never be released on movie theater. And they're all nominated to cinema, nominated to the Oscar. So certainly it puts a little bit of a question mark. Are we through a new period? I don't know. I really don't know. Like I said, the two producers are giving me exactly opposite perspective on what's going to happen. You need to tell your story. It's about storytelling. So whether it's going to yes. go on platform, yeah, at, the, at the end of the day, you could, you could do whatever you want. You, know, if you, you could end up in virtual reality. You still need somebody to sit down and write your stories. That's the, that won't change. So that's what I'm doing right now. Ziad, you are absolutely committed to the film craft, as is Thank Quentin you. Tarantino. That is something that has rubbed off. It was probably there. It has just been elevated to a different level after working with him, I'm sure. Ziad, I'd like to bring into the conversation your cinematographer, Tommaso Fiorelli, to talk about the way that you went about shooting in human resources. Uh, Tommaso, congratulations to you and your team around the camera and what you've achieved for this uh, fantastic series. Can I start off by asking you, firstly, how big was your team around the camera? Hello, Craig. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. So we had two cameras. Uh, one Steadicam operator, uh, and then a standard grip and electrician crew. So I guess we were probably like uh, six persons at the camera crew, and then maybe uh, five electrician and like three grips or four grips, something like that. And plus extras here and there uh, from day to day, something like that. From a cinematographer's point of view, using the two cameras really does preserve the continuity of the light. And I felt that that's what I was watching, uh, two cameras in operation. To a non-filmmaker, the audience, of course, operate on a more subconscious level of enjoying scenes for this reason, but not knowing why it feels good to them. And with the lighting, for example, in the offices, with all of that natural window light, you must have been sort of thinking in terms of preserving the continuity of light. Was that part of the decision for using the two, the two cameras for the shoot? You're right. The, the, the continuity of the light was a really big uh, question for me because uh, of the orientation of the building. The sun was going in and out of the, of the building and uh, there was no way to light it because it was at the like, 15th floor or something like that in a, in a real building. It wasn't, made in, it wasn't made in a studio. So we had to work with natural light. What we did is what we thought through the, um, the, the schedule for the shooting in a way that the sun was in the right place at the moment that we wanted to shoot the scene. So we worked a lot with the first AD to kind of uh, organize this in a way also to preserve the acting continuity. So we tried not to jump from one scene to the other or, or whatever, but the order of the, sh the shot we had to, to do was according to the, the sun position. For that particular scene, it was very, very tricky because uh, uh, the orientation of the building wasn't perfect. We had to deal with it. And I want to come back and ask you about the movement of the camera, but firstly, let me just go to Ziad, because I do want to talk about the movement of the fluidness of the camera. There is so much fluid movement, uh, so much so that when I first watched the, the first episode, normally what I do is I'll 
pick up the next episode the following day, but I was so curious as to what was going to be happening in the next episode, I found myself going into the next episode just to see what you were doing with uh, camera tracking shots, all of that continuity fluidness uh, with the filming. So explain a little bit, Ziad. There's obviously, yeah. this is a huge part of the way that you've put together this series with the camera moving. You've, you've squeezed every possible ounce of movement. And I'm always fascinated uh, seeing that because sometimes a film can start off with quite a lot of movement and then suddenly it gets less and less. You never let up. You just kept your foot on the throat, so to speak, and kept that camera moving. So it was a big part, right, with the way that you planned this all out? I've been thinking about my life, actually, recently. How is my, my, my genetics play a part in the way I see things? When I started in, in Los Angeles in my early career, you know, I always had a dolly grip, and I always felt a little bit constrained by a dolly because you have a track, you have a straight track or curved track, and then you cannot really go outside of that track. When I started working with Quentin Tarantino, he kind of like took the Steadicam out and he used to shoot a lot about it. And I saw how easy and how liberating a movement is when you are on Steadicam. It allows you to change the background constantly while you are chasing the actors. That's why we spend a lot of time trying to find interesting location with a lot of windows that gives you an opening to the exteriors. Or if you have a, 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 in the background and it's something further than the background. It's something that I've always felt very comfortable with. It's like my, my body wants to constantly move. Tomazo and I worked out a system where we can shoot 360 degrees without being obstructed by lights or trucks or whatever. And then on Pulp Fiction, or on Reservoir Dog actually, it started where Quentin had just started using the Steadicam in the early 90s for me. And, and it was a time where I was an assistant camera on a steady cam that allowed me to move closer to it. And I start seeing the benefit of it. First, it frees you. Second, it frees the actors also. He becomes free. He can move. And if he, an actor blocks another, another actor, the steady cam have to slightly compensate you tilt up a little bit, you tilt up down. It's just, I start feeling like this is better for me. It suits me better than the dolly. Doesn't mean I don't use the dolly. I just feel like the steady cam is when you have a great steady cam operator and today you have gyro mount that stabilizes the image terrifically. It gives me an incredible free. I still believe that the steady cam could be still improved. I still think there are certain things that I can't do that one day maybe the technology will allow us to do, but the movement is a way of me telling the story the better because I just like to move. You know, and I, as I said it before, it's also probably due to my hi hyperactive state. And you move around. It allows you to follow the, the action and at the same time reveal the sets and the, the windows and what's outside the windows. You know, my life has always been a struggle for freedom. Since Beirut, since I grew up in Beirut, where we lived under oppressive regimes and oppressive movement. I've, since my childhood, I always felt I just want to be free. It's part of who I am and moving the camera is an expression of the freedom that I need. And you mentioned that you think that the Steadicam could still be improved. What, what aspect of the Steadicam are you talking about with improvement? For example, there are times where I want to start very low on the feet and track all the way up and overshoot the head of the actor. Now, I understand they have some stuff that you can slide the camera, you know, you can take the arm of the Steadicam the post and put it completely horizontal and then turn it around and it just becomes a little heavy. 
I still believe that the Steadicam is the best tool out there. It's better than the gimbal because there are limitations to the gimbal, which is also very interesting. And I'm sure it will get advanced. But I still think the Steadicam is so organic and it's the best tool that I've used. That's why I'm being, it's conditional on every set that I have. Now, I'm sure that the, the technology will invent lighter cameras in order to let the Steadicam stay a little bit longer. Uh, if you saw 1917, that was brilliant movement what they did. Mm. But that's very intricate thing. You know, I think that the Steadicam frees me up from feeling so confined to certain limitations. Well, I have to compliment you, Ziad. The, the movement in the series, it's just beautiful to watch. And I never, I never got bored with watching any of it. it but just because of the, I had this huge appreciation for what was going on with the camera. And Tommaso, achieving that fluid movement, how much in pre-production are you doing with your team to be working out the way you're going to shoot the series? We do actually a lot of work with Ziad. So we put a lot of attention in scouting the location so that we uh, have location where we can move the, the Steadicam uh, freely, where we have a lot of depth. We always look for a uh, location where we don't shoot against walls. We all have windows, we have corridors, we have windows. We always shoot in location where we have depth, uh, different levels of perspective. The level of perspective plays into the way that you, you film the series. And if you look at, for example, just one that I'm thinking of, as you mentioned, the, the depth of perspective is the interior outside the courtroom. It's a beautiful shot with plenty of depth. Those are all part of your locations, the way that you've worked out that you're going to do your tracking shots and the way that it just opens up to more of a grandeur feel. Exactly. Because of uh, the, the way we shoot, so the very short lens, the Steadicam shot, it's very difficult to plan the shot ahead of time. So on paper, it's really difficult to decide like uh, where we put the camera, where we put the actors and do that sort of blocking on papers. That doesn't really work for us. So we uh, show up on location every day, like two hours ahead. And we stand in, we try to do, uh, to build up the choreographies. Then one hour before the shoot, we have the actors coming in and we do a last rehearsal with them to see if it, everything works out. The Steadicam operator comes in at that moment, we show him the movement and then we start working with the crew to uh, finish the lighting. And I really like that because for me it's very intuitive. It's like I have the feeling we are creating right now the scene. This blocking in the morning where we just say the lines and move around the set with the camera to see what we're going to do during the day. And when doing uh, these long takes, I could see that you're pretty much getting every possible inch that you possibly could before you cut and then go into coverage. So you're trying to extend that shot, that one or as long as you can, it seems to me. That's the way it looks. That's exactly that. For me, if I could do all, take, all, all scenes in one shot, it would be great. Then it doesn't work, for, of course, for for acting and for rhythm and uh, stuff like that. We end up doing several warners. It's not actually the, the several master shots. I, I like to carry on the action as much as I can because uh, it's more natural for the actors. So the actors play it like, like it was like a, in one scene from the beginning to the end. So this is perfect for me. If I could let the actors do the scene from the beginning till the end, 
and maybe several times, like from one angle and then the other angle, it's much better. I like much better doing that for, I think, the energy of the set. I think every, everybody is more into the, the feeling. My feeling is that a scene, uh, or at least I think even a movie, uh, is like a river and you have to let it flow just direct it, direct it from the left, from the right. Every time you stop it, you create a cut in the energy and, uh, and don't feel it's right. So sometimes I cut scenes in pieces. Like sometimes you have a, a scene that lasts five minutes and we decide, okay, we do two minutes, three minutes there, two minutes, and then we cut and then we do the next three minutes because it gets too complicated. But otherwise I prefer having a scene going from the beginning to the end trying to find my way with the Steadicam in, the, in, the, in that. And Ziad, it's, it's quite obvious to me that both you and Tomaso are on the same page when you're doing these long tracking shots. Talk me through typically how you work a scene, like in the apartment, that tracking shot with Eric and the rehearsing with the, the actors and working out the framing to pull off all of those shots. Uh, just give us a little bit of a taste in terms of how that would all work through the way you direct it. The priority for me is that the scene must feel organic. So before I start getting technical, I just want to make sure that we feel fine, me and the actors, that the movement that they have to execute during the scene is credible. Do you want to put the glass at this time in the dialogue? Do you want to go grab your fork? Do you want to go hug your wife at this time? So once we feel comfortable with how natural it feels, I try to inject some dynamism. For example, the actor could say, look, what about if I do it sitting down? I have to think about it twice before I allow the actress to play it sitting down because I may want to prefer if he's moving while he's saying it and then he sits down. That kind of, you know, Greg, mainly you, you spend time getting the actors to go into your world. It's, it's work that starts way, way during early casting. It's for me to inject all the actors of who I am and how I would like to do things and slowly bring them to your world so they understand that, okay, I guess this director is hyperactive and he wants to move things. Uh, most of the time you manage to succeed. So once succeed in convincing the actors that this is the one I want, this is how I want to shoot the movie. I want to have movement, that, 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 that. And then once they get comfortable with the idea and they understand your style, they go along. It doesn't mean they always work, but most of the time, I would say nine times out of ten, it works my way. So we come on a set, we walk with the scene, and I tell the actors, let's try this. What if I go to the window? Because it's always nice to go shoot against windows. And Tomaso is sitting next to me thinking, well, if, if Ziad wants to bring in the actors to the window, where would I place my light? And once we work out the mechanics, I take a, a viewfinder, we put the camera, we put the lens, and I start chasing the actors from point A to point B, and I'm doing it as it go along. With time, you start getting easy with it. You start getting understanding very quickly what you want. Should I go wrap around the actors on the left, or should I go wrap around the actors on the right? Suppose I'm chasing after the actors. It's a, it's a shot behind his door, behind his back. And then his wife opened the door, and then she enters. And I would say, okay, approach your husband. And then while she's walking to her husband, do I want to continue in a fluid movement where we start on a wife as she's entering the door, walking down the hallway, heading to her husband? Should I stay over the shoulder or should I spin 180 degrees? And now it's from the wife's perspective to her husband. Once we all work out all these mechanics, I try to stay true to the story. For example, there's a line that is important that I see the husband saying it. I'm probably going to stay and do a spin around and end up on the, on the, on the husband. Or some 
sometimes I say, okay, look, this fluid movement is good. I'll do it in a, over the shoulder and then I'll cut it and I'll shoot the countermaster. Then I'll be able to see my husband. So we'll do it that way. We rehearse it. And once we feel pretty fluid with it, always keeping in mind that I want to spin the camera. I want to keep moving the camera, guys. Don't stop. If it's justified, let's keep moving the camera. If it's not justified, we're not going to do it. And once, let's say, the couple are stopped in the middle of the living room and they are arguing with each other, is it possible that the steady camera and profile move slowly toward the actors? What if we start moving slowly? And at the beginning, you say, okay, they stop that, we should stop. And throughout these years, I've been experimenting. Not experimenting, I've been trying things. I said, you know, there are no rules. What if we start moving in profile and then I end the film in profile? This scene is going to end in a profile set shot. Mm. I don't need to do close-up and close-up. I just want to play on profile and I'll tell the steady cam, I'll be standing with him and I'll tap him on the shoulder a little bit and he got it. I th- throughout the years, he understood what I want and then he slowly creeps in toward the actors. So I'm constantly communicating with the steady cam, even during the shot by tapping him on the left, tapping him on the right and he, that's why I work with the same team because they get it. They understand. Instinct. You see, the, the director is not just about you know, big ideas and ideals. It's about communicating your feelings to your crew so they get it. So you don't have to over-explain it all the time. And I work with those crew because we understand each other so well. And this is why I keep hiring them back and forth, back and forth. So I hope I answered your question, how you stage a scene. Oh, you answered it beautifully. And uh, I think it's a bit of a masterclass for our indie filmmakers in particular to go back and watch... And, and really dissect the way that you have moved the camera and also the nuanced things that you are doing, nuanced, very small things. Now, it might be picking up a cigarette lighter and lighting a cigarette. These All these little small things which are a break in what the actor would be doing. You know, Greg, most of the time, these things happen on the spot. We have not pre-planned them. Like when I come on a set, I have an idea what I want, but I don't have the idea of everything that I want. You know, on my first film, I planned everything. I storyboarded everything. I was very organized. And the, the, the more I do this job, the less I pre-plan things. I just grew to be more confident. Let things happen on a set and see how it goes. It's just once you hop on the bandwagon, it's going to lead you somewhere and you've got to trust the process. Really, I do not over-prepare myself. I am prepared. I know what I want. But it's just, it takes more time. I over-overshoot all my budget. There's not a single film that I have done or a series that I have done where I did not cost the producer extra. They are always over, even though I sign my budget, I always overshoot it. They keep hiring me again. I don't know why, but just the idea is that I take a little bit of time preparing for what I want to do instead of being so prepared in advance. I mean, I know a lot what I want to do in advance. Don't mistake me. But I allow also the moment to decide. And Tomaso always followed me in that. It's sometimes frustrating for him. It's sometimes a little bit agonizing for the crew because I change my mind. But I let the, the last minute decide. You understand, it's, it's, it's important for me to have, again, that freedom that I'm talking about. And I, I just need to have, you know, I come from a very oppressing society. And, and it kind of, kind of got an ingrained so much in my mind that I don't want any restrictions. I don't want... There are always some kind of restrictions, but I don't want that many. I want to be able to feel free, feel free to do mistakes, feel free to change my mind, feel free to tell the actors this, take two. No, I don't want it. I want to change it. And that costs time. That costs some time uh, setbacks. But this is how I work. And 
it's been working for me. Maybe one day things will change. I don't know, but I've been more and more confident that I can let the last moment decide. The focus pulling execution was meticulous and really well thought out, although it has to be when the director has been the focus puller for three Quentin Tarantino films. So no pressure as a cinematographer, I guess, that that whole knowledge and experience that Ziad has is very beneficial, Tommaso, to you and for everybody else around the camera for making sure that that focus pulling is executed really well. Yeah, 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 you're right. Uh, focus pulling is a big thing when I work with, with Ziad. My crew, they're wonderful. I mean, like, uh, I work with uh, Lucie Colombier and Jimmy Boursiers that do two amazing focus pullers, and uh, that's their job. Like, uh, they, they're really good at it. And I think it's not only the technical uh, execution of the, the work, it's also the feeling. Like, they, they put the, the, the focus on the where it has to be. And honestly, with the, the way we work, so it's very, we do very little rehearsal. It's really their feeling. Like, I don't tell them very much. Like, once in a while, we discuss with the ad and say, oh, the focus should be here, the focus should be there. But most of the time, they nail it by themselves. Like, they feel it when they have to pull focus, and uh, that's how it works. But yes, you, you, were, you were asking me in the beginning, uh, about my crew, my main concern when I start a movie is who I'm going to work with. Like, uh, what's the perfect crew for the project? Because for every project you have, I think, a different perfect crew. But yes, in this case, Focus Puller and Steadicam Operator are really a big part of my collaboration with Ziad. I agree with Ziad uh, when, when he says we kind of uh, get got to know each other. And uh, we don't have to think about it very much. Like for me, when I frame something with the ad, I know how he likes it. I know what lens he's going to like. I know how is, what the composition is going to like. It got over the years very, very easy and we get along uh, very well together. I think uh, to come back on what the ad was saying, uh, saying that sometimes I feel frustrated because uh, he changes his mind or improvises a shot that wasn't supposed to be like that. I don't agree with that. I know you always tell me, ah, oh, you must be frustrated or something. And I always tell you, no, it's not true. I, I quite agree with it. Like, uh, as I was saying on the, on the energy flowing uh, thing, uh, it's very important that we do what we feel. I do, it, I do it myself. Like when I feel I have to move, I feel I have to frame something, I do it. I think Ziad does it with his actors, the way he directs the Steadicam operator. And I think that's, that's very important that we are free to improvise, to change our minds and that the crew follows us in, uh, into that. Tommaso, talk me through the bus scene because there is this wonderful tracking shot with Eric and his daughter walking along a street. It looks like the street isn't closed off, judging by some of the people across the other side of the street looking on. Was that the case? Because it just had this real energy that everything was alive in the shot. Yes, that's that's what that that's exactly that. The, the street wasn't blocked. Uh, we function like that most of the time, so we don't block street exactly for that reason. It's really difficult and um, also very time-consuming and expensive to organize proper life in the street. Uh, so yes, we just showed up, and uh, I mean, it was supposed we were supposed to shoot there. It's kind of uh, that, that's not. We just didn't show up like that in the street and shot. Yeah, it's just uh, ordinary people walking around and we had just a few extras and that's it. But the, most of it is like um, the real life. You know, for the sake of one or two people looking on, the result that you get, the gain 
far outweighs any losses with a couple of eyeballs looking at as much to say what's going on over there. A little bit to the bus scene as well. I haven't seen a scene like this before where the bus is moving, people are packed around the two actors. Zian, talk us through this because I presume this is uh, two cameras being deployed. Um, Often this type of scene, it's more about the extras trying to keep the extras under control and looking natural and not overplaying it. But it was such a wonderful little scene and quite intimate, but with other people listening into into their conversation. You know, the original scene the way it was written originally was not on a bus. It was just two people, the father and the daughter, talking. And I told the screenwriter, I says, what if we move that scene into the bus? We make it starts on the street. They're walking toward the bus stop. Then they, the door opens and they hop in. And then we go with them and we continue to see. And the reason I did that is because it's a bit more provocative. It's, it's, it's character revelation. She's storytelling is also about, not just about shots. It's about how you reveal character. And we wanted to show that this father, like his daughter, they do not hesitate to express their opinion and their anger and their frustration with each, with each other within the public context. And we rented this bus and we just packed them in the bus and then made sure that in the framing, we always keep shoulders of people standing by listening to their conversation. And you notice that we played it, how I call it, dirty framing. That means there's always people in the background. They were always part of the crowd. I did not want to isolate the father and daughter from the crowd. We want to put it part of them. And that's how we played it. And then we just, uh, you know, just try to make it as natural as possible about two people who have no hold bars about anything. They just express their frustration and they say scandalous things in the middle of the bus. That's how we did it. It was a simple thing. It's simple, but it wasn't that simple. I remember like like fixing the two cameras, all these actors in the bus. It was the idea was simple, but the making it it was pretty 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 tricky. And Tommaso, tell us uh, the camera setup that was used on the series with the lens kit that you used as well. So we shot on Alexa Mini with the op- Optimo Zoom, so op- uh, the, the lightweight zoom, uh, so that we can use them on Steadicam and handheld. And uh, we control everything with the motor. So Zial has the motor for the zoom, and he developed uh, this skill to and this uh, uh, collaboration with the Steadicam operator. So he does a lot of this uh, zoom during the during the shot, a little bit improvised. So actually, he, he does it on the on the fly, and he managed to communicate that with the with the Steadicam operator, so they are on the same page, and it works really well. Wow. So we had and, the, yeah, and, and the focus puller, of course, has got to be onto that as well. Exactly, exactly. So the focus puller has a little monitor, so it's, it knows what the what the framing is and um, what the focal length, so it can adjust that uh, consequently. Yeah. To let you know something about Greg for the next project that we're thinking about, the size of the zoom is something that I'm thinking about with Tomazo because I'm a bit concerned about it. I want to do the next film in a scope, in cinema scope with real anamorphic lenses, and these are big heavy lenses. And, you know, the heavier the lens, the more load you're going to put on a steady camera. So if you have a small camera with a big zoom lens, if it's scope, if it's anamorphic lens, they do not exist in lightweight yet. The incredible advantage of the optimal Arginio lenses, they're very lightweight and they're very beautiful. Okay, they work. And I, if I want to continue shooting in that format, that would work. But what if we want to shoot the full frame? What if we want to shoot scope? I'm constantly weighing, says, should I stay with that format? 
using the Optimo Zoom because I love them so much. They come in set of three and they covered the variety from, I think, uh, 14 mil to 105. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tomazo. Yeah. They covered a great range and they are all very small and very light. They're made from graphite and the optics is great and they are not so sharp. And that's what I like about them. They have a little bit of a soft tint to them, tint, which I like about it. Now, if you want to shoot, which we're considering shooting the next film in CinemaScope, then I will not have that flexibility to use those light zooms because they do not exist in lightweight. So it's something that I'm thinking about. You know, I, I, I don't want to lose freedom. The optimal zoom give me freedom because sometimes you're tracking and then you want to do a 180 degree and then you know that I need to zoom in a little bit during the pan and then zoom out again. You're compensating movement constantly. And when you zoom in and zoom out during a moving shot, you don't see it. It kind of get blended with the movement. And that's the advantage of these optic, optics. So I, I'm constantly you know, you, zooming in and zooming out. It doesn't stop. And I move it constantly and nobody sees it because it's, you're doing it with the movement. And with the movement, comes yeah. Back for I never picked it up. I didn't realize until you just mentioned it now. And obviously with the movement, it's being, you're losing it. You're not seeing it. And you're being very quick with that, uh, with that zooming. I can assure you, you, the zoom never stops. And sometimes they're just simple light adjustment. So how long have you been doing this zooming in? I've been doing it since I was an assistant camera because, you know, the Panaflex, I remember so well when we were shooting in 35 back in the 80s and the 90s. The Panavision system had a zoom control, which you hold it in your hand like a gun. It looks literally like a gun, like a pistol. That's, you know, they used to have the, the Microforce system done by Cinema Product and you used to have that zoom. And I always had that pistol and with your thumb, you click it. And you push, it goes zoom in, and then your thumb, you click the knob backward, and it goes zoom out. And I've always gotten good at it because, you know, when you're an assistant, you do those zooms. You're not only focus pulling. I used to do the focus and zoom at the same time. And I did a lot of Western back in the 80s when I used to go film in Arizona. And then, you know, in, 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 in Westerns, you try to create that 70s look where you used to do a lot of zoom in and out. And Quentin Tarantino kind of like, I remember during the 80s at one point when I was working in Los Angeles, it was not good to do zoom because somebody came up with like, the eye doesn't zoom, then we should reduce the zoom. All right. And then there was a time we stopped making zooms. And then when I went with Reservoir Dog and Pop Fiction, Quentin brought that style back and he used to do a lot of zoom in. And then it became stylish again. And then I started zooming back and forth and I developed a knack. It became secondhand. When to stop your zoom, if you can do it and you don't want people to see it, you got to know when you do it. It's often on a certain movement that you can hide your zoom, but it allows us great freedom. For example, you're doing a 180-degree zoom, 180-degree movement, sorry, a pan. And then you know that at one point, there's this light that Tomazo hang outside that it kind of going to require from the steady cam to tilt his cameras down a little bit to avoid it. But by tilting it, you might be cutting the guy's act, the actor's head. And what you do sometimes, so imperceptibly, you just zoom in a little bit in the photograph. You avoid that light. And by the time the movement is over, you zoom out again. It might be just a couple of millimeters in and out. And then you solve the problem and nobody sees it. I challenge anybody mm -hmm. to come and see, mm -hmm. says, I saw your zoom. You don't see it. You just have to know when to do it. The new assistant that come and work with us, sometimes I give them the zoom and I tell her, like, look, I want you to start practicing with the zoom. That way I can concentrate on other things sometimes. And you start showing them that there is a way of finessing the zoom in a way that nobody sees it.
Also, the locations were quite economical, but never felt that way when watching the series. There were the offices, the apartment, the motor home, the prison, but outside of that, not too many locations. But it never felt uh, constrained or restricted by choices of locations. Ziad, clearly that paid off with the, with the strong look of the shooting schedule. Not too many locations, really. Look, I want to tell you something. People are used to, when they want to do something in Paris, to always shoot into what make Paris such a beautiful city. You know, the, the typical cliche that you find in Woody Allen's film or I Love Paris, which is the, uh, you know, the, the zinc and the Hasmanian design and the baguette and the bakery shops. That we've seen this ratatouille. We've seen ratatouille a hundred times. Mm. When we conceived uh, in human resource, I said it's about being modern. It's about filming the modern side of Paris. And that's why we decided to go a little bit outside of Paris in one of the neighborhood. It's the, cent- the commercial district. This is where all the banking and the biggest companies are located there. And it's a metro ride. It's literally inside Paris, outside of Paris zone, I mean. It's just two stops and you're into the ultra modern where you have skyscrapers and you have tall buildings and you have glass. People don't know that this side of France exists. In fact, I've even discovered it one day by pure error that there was a modern side to Paris. I discovered it, and that's why the previous series that I've done with Thomas also called Baron Noir, Black Baron, was, enti- was mainly shot there. What we wanted to do when I started discussing and thinking with Tomaso about the look of a human resource, I said, this is about big corporation, the most advanced high-tech buildings. We're not going to do it in conventional Paris because it's old. I want something new and modern. So we start going there scouting, and then we find out that there are some great geometry there. And believe me, the earlier location that we found to play the offices was one hell of a set. It was one of the most beautiful set. It was perfectly, it was pointing south, so we were always backlit. And the window facade were outstanding. It just at the last minute, the owner of the building did not want us to film there because for lawsuit purposes, whatever there were, people are very nervous these days in France. People are very nervous all over the world. Nobody wants to make a statement. You know, if you mm-hmm. if, if something is you put a little bit of a red flag on a company, they're gonna say, Oh, why did you describe us? So anyway, we were evicted from that building and we had to go across the the center and film in the opposite building, which was still modern, but not as modern as the one we originally scouted for. The reason I'm telling you this is the aesthetic choice that you choose, it has to reflect the spirit of the story. We wanted to show, I wanted to show a more geometric side of Paris, more geometric and modern side of Paris. And having grown up in Beirut and in Los Angeles, I've always felt a lot more comfortable with these big geometric architecture. I am much more, you put me in nature, I might not be able to film it that good. You put me in a very packed, stacked city, whether it's Hong Kong or Beirut or Los Angeles or New York, I'm more flexible with it. I see it better that way, you know, because it's all psychological, Greg. Life is about psychology, where you come from, where I come from. I grew up in Beirut in a very chaotic city where buildings are stacked on top of each other, but I find that very visually appealing, much more appealing than Ratatouille, if you know what I'm saying. I'd never seen that look, that aesthetic uh, before in any film, not just Paris, but any European film that has got such a distinctive look and definitely helped with story. 
and then you take a drone, you fly over the, these buildings, you, you you enhance also this look. There's something that is so liberating about drones. I love drones. Can't wait to where the technology can put up higher resolution cameras and you can fly them longer because they just create something incredible. Before we go, a couple more questions I want to get to. And one is the way that he talked to the camera looking completely different. We, we knew that it was a different time and a different place. And it was framed enough so that you couldn't really make out that he was in a prison cell. But every time that we go back to Eric's character, it fills the viewer with dread. Because Eric looks to have a look of hopelessness. We know that something bad has happened. We know that it's going to come full circle, which is poking the viewer at different stages throughout the film. Tell me what you were hoping to achieve with those scenes in the cell with, uh, with Eric looking so different. Do you know that these are the scenes that were shot with anamorphic lenses? We changed the format within the film. If you look carefully at the frame, the whole film was shot in two-to-one ratio, except those close-up of Eric was shot in scope ratio, which is 2.4 to 1. And wow. we did it on purpose. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to, have to have a look at that again. Yes. If you look at it, I don't know. If you see it on Netflix, you might not be able to see the difference. But the thick lines on a monitor on top, you know, the black lines that defines mm. the frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, yeah. Are bigger, they are bigger when Eric speaks to the camera because we, on purpose, we changed the, we changed the format. The reason we wanted that was simple is we're talking about an inner voice of the actor, the narrator, when the guy is in jail, is in his cell. But we framed it in a way where we did not want to reveal that it was in jail. Now, some people got it, some people didn't get it. We want to give the impression that he could be anywhere. He could be hiding, he could be in a psychiatric ward, he could be in jail, he could be anywhere. And it's at the end that we reveal that he's actually in jail. But the reason we wanted to change the look of it is because he's the narrator. He is the guy who is telling the story from the beginning and wrap it up at the end. It took us a while to try to figure it out how to mesh it in. It was not that easy. I mean, I don't remember all the details, Greg, but I remember that we spent a little bit of time to try to define the chronology on the story. When do, when do we go back to that point? And then we finally figure it out. We go back to that point when he is looking at himself in the mirror and he is tattooing himself with a needle. That's when we come back to the... And st starting that point in the story, when he's tattooing himself in the mirror and he shaved himself like a gypsy, starting from that moment till the end of the film, that's the present time. And everything is in the past. So it took us a little bit of while working on the script to try to define that moment. And we wanted to create a slightly different look. And Tomaso and I came up with the idea. He says, oh, what about we shoot it in scope? We talked to the producer and we talked to the network. No, I actually don't think we talked to the network because we didn't think they would agree to change the format. So we went and did it anyway because we knew that nobody knows. You know, they're just they're yeah. going to feel it. They're not going to know it. And then I remember when, when we did it, uh, they loved it. They did, I said, did you know that we changed the format in the middle of this? They said, oh, no, did you? I said, yeah, we did. And then it just goes unnoticed. But it just we want to create a slightly different look with that scope. And Ziad, Eric Cantona, what a great choice to play this multi-layered role of both protagonist and antagonist. Uh, how did you come to realise that Eric was the man for this role? Because it really is a career-defining moment for him. Look, to tell you the truth, this is a very funny story. 
because when we started casting, they start giving me, you know, names, pretty known names of actors of that caliber. And I met some of them and I was just not so convinced. I kept on thinking, this is not how I see this guy. And in one of those meetings, three months later, we still have not found the actors. I was sitting looking at a, in, in the production office, looking at a magazine. And then I was flipping through the magazine and I stumbled on a photograph of this guy in a soccer game. And I said, you see that face? This is the kind of face that I'm looking to play that role. And then they kind of giggled among themselves. And then they say, well, this is Eric Cantona. I says, who's Cantona? I says, I don't know who he is. He says, well, he's a big football player. He used to play with Manchester United. I said, look, I don't watch football. Plus, you know, regular football is not seen in the United States. You know, soccer does not really exist in the United States in that form. They say, well, he's also an actor. I said, what? what? This is an actor? I did not know. And then, then they said, yes, he played in several movies and everything. And he played a film. Uh, it's called Looking for Eric, which I've never seen. Yes. I didn't oh, know. I had absolutely no idea who this guy is. And I said, okay, if you're telling me he's an actor, what about we take an appointment with him? Let me. And they said, sure, let's call him. Why not? The idea seems interesting. A week later, I'm on a train heading back to southern France. And then uh, he comes and Eric comes and pick me up at the train station. And then he takes me to a restaurant a little bit isolated. On the way from the car to the restaurant, many people start coming up to him asking for autograph. That's why I finally figure out that he chose a restaurant that's very isolated. So he doesn't, and he knew the owner. So we were put in a very far away table. You know, Greg, I had no idea who that guy is. Never absolutely heard or see him as a soccer player or as an actor. And then we wow. sat down. And the first thing I told him, I said, look, Eric, I was told that you were playing this and you did this, but I'm sorry, I have to be honest. I've never heard about you. And I just uh -huh. want you to know that I'm following my instinct here. That's it. I had an instinct about something. I want to follow through. He said, yeah, let's follow your instinct. And we sat down and we talked for two hours. And then two hours later, I was on the train back to Paris when the producer called me and says, how did it go? I said, I think it was terrific. I have a feeling he's the guy, but I don't know if he can act or not. And then a week later or, or three, four weeks later, he has a play in Paris. So I go to watch the play, which he invited me. And we and the producers, in order to at least get to know what this guy is, and it's the shittiest play I've ever seen. I mean, <laughs> was such a horror, was such a bad play, badly written and badly acted. I was very discouraged. So I looked at the producers on the way out. I says, I think we really screwed up with our choice. Now, how are we going to do? Then I said, you know what? I have an idea. We're going to make a casting. Hell with it. He's, he refused to do casting because he thought that his fate was going to depend on the network's choice. And I told Eric, look, it's not the network that decide. It's me who decide. And then after a while, he kind of got convinced. And we did those little few repetition. And I find out that the guy is so disciplined. And the guy is so serious. Because, I don't, you know, you could like a guy, but you don't know how to work with him. He could be yeah. flake. He could be totally unreliable into improvisation. And I do not work improvised. I improvise right. my shop, but not the text. You know, we, we spend years writing text, not for you to come and toss it and improvise. <laughs> Sometimes you can. but So we start talking and stuff like that. And then I said, wow, this is starting to work. And I told the producer from now on, every weekend, for five, six weekends, I'm going to go to Lisbon because he lives in Lisbon. And I'm going to repeat with him every single weekend. And that's how I start taking the flight every weekend to sit down and discuss how to work without necessarily going into the details of what the role is. I spend five weekends from morning to night telling him about my life in Beirut so he could get to know what I want. It became much more of getting to 
bring him to my world the way I see things, the way I see my concept of this film, not just do repetition and read. I mean, we did read from time to time. And I would say, ah, oh, let's try this way, let's try that way. And it went terrific. What was amazing, working with people who are professional sports player, exactly like people who are in the military, they have an yes. incredible amount of discipline. Yes. And by the time we came on the first day of shoot, he, I swear, he had memorized by heart to the letter, the sixth episode. I mean, wow. he was phenomenal. He's like an astronaut. You cannot screw it up. He was like, we did very few takes with Eric because he knew his text so well. And we spend some time getting the tone, but he, because he's so instinctive and he's not an intellectual, he's not a cerebral guy. You just get the best out of him because he gets it. And I walked to him one word. I said, you know what? You looked at that word right. Maybe you should look left. And he would get it. He would get the spirit. And it was one of the most fantastic experiences I've ever had with this guy. He was just such a kind, modest guy. Too much on the left for me. But, you know, he was too pro. You know, he's, you know I'm, I'm a centrist. And sometimes we'd argue politically. And then I said, you know what? Don't argue with this guy. He's too much of a socialist. I'm not a big socialist. <laughs> So, so we avoided the political talk, but he's such a great guy, so disciplined. That's such a pleasure seeing that. Ziad, fantastic to share your work and style as a filmmaker to our film community. It's been an educational one with a high caliber of filmmaking that you have achieved. And Tommaso, first class workmanship as a highly respected cinematographer. You're at the top of your game and I thank you both for coming on to shoot it now. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you and uh, keep up with the show. Thank you. And I would like to thank Tomaso for his great work. It's been, we've been collaborating for 11 years now, so it's a wonderful collaboration. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.